Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Jesse mentioned we've been in the book of John. We kind of did a a rewind and we went back to John chapter 1 and started to unpack John chapter 1 in the the Advent series. And now we're kind of fast forwarding again to John chapter 18. So let's kind of get a refresher on the book of John. So there's a slide up here. I'll kind of show you the layout of the book of John. And Anthony's going to pull that up for us. Uh, Next slide there. Sorry, that was out of order. The book of signs is John chapters 1 through 12, and we saw this introduction as we were going through the Advent season. We saw, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that's kind of this introduction of who Jesus was, and then we get this Cana cycle where Jesus is traveling throughout this land of Cana, and he's performing some miracles and showing people who he was, But then in chapters 5 through 10, the festival cycle, Jesus is performing seven miracles uh, throughout John chapter 2 through John chapter 10 that are exemplifying who he is, that he's Messiah, and he's describing himself as the Son of God, and yet still he's being rejected. And it kind of culminates to this final miracle in chapters 11 through 12, known as the Lazarus cycle, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We just came out of, before Advent, uh, the Upper Room Discourse, and this starts the, the book of exaltation, uh, where Jesus is exalted, and we start off with this Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus, knowing that he was about to die, disrobes himself, and he gets down on his hands and knees and grabs a basin filled with water and starts to wash his disciples' feet. And in the subsequent moments, he describes that He's going to die, that he's going back to his Father, and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit so that by abiding in him, they can bear much fruit. But it's today that we enter this last section that's known as the Passion Narrative. Here we see the humility of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, John does this really interesting thing in these chapters where he he centers on these individual narratives of people. He shows us the pictures of, of who Peter is and who John is and who Mary Magdalene is, and he kind of zeroes in on these different reactions to Jesus. We're going to see some of that even this morning. I have a question for you. Have you ever needed a substitute? Have you ever needed someone to step in and fill in for you? I remember I was in the seventh grade. I I had made the boys' basketball team. Now, I was not a good basketball player by any stretch of the imagination. And somehow, miraculously, I made the seventh grade basketball team. In fact, I remember coming home to tell my family, and they're like, really? Really, that happened? So I made the seventh grade basketball team. And I remember one particular game where uh, miraculously my time uh, was in any given game was the five seconds between the end or just right before the end of the first half. That's when I got in. When we didn't have the ball, there was no possibility that I would shoot anything. That's when I got in. And so sure enough, I was playing in my Jason five seconds there. And uh, some point guard threw a bad pass and it came right to me. And, And 
there I was dribbling down the floor. There was no defender in front of me. The nearest defender was 10 feet behind me. And my mind starts going, don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. And so I'm dribbling and dribbling and coming nearer and nearer to the basket. It was like the day of reckoning was coming, right? You know, I was going to have to shoot this ball. And sure enough, came and I'm just trying to do it. Real simple layup. I'm the only one on the court. And lay it up and it hits the bottom of the rim and comes right back at me. I needed a substitute. I needed someone else to take that moment. What if, what if it were possible for me to swap jerseys with the best player on the team? For me to give him my number, whatever it was, and for me to take his number so that all his stats became my stats and all my stats, the failed layup at the basket became his problem. See, our text today shows us two different men, one seeking and one hiding, both in need of a substitute. Judas is seeking seeking for all the wrong reasons, seeking Jesus so that he might hand him over to be arrested so that he can have these 40 uh, silver coins. Peter, meanwhile, will see he's hiding. He doesn't want to own his relationship to Jesus. And so both of these men need a substitute, don't they? See, what I think our text this morning is getting at is this, that Jesus was betrayed and denied so that he might become a substitute for sinners like you and me. Jesus Christ was betrayed and denied so that he might become a substitute. We're going to see this just in two primary movements in our passage this morning. First, in verses 1 through 14, Judas betrays Jesus with this worldly authority. He gathers soldiers and swords, and he comes after Jesus. And so Jesus, Judas is a betrayer. Peter, though, is a denier. In verses 15 through 27, Peter denies Jesus with this kind of half-hearted allegiance. I want to dive in this morning and just kind of let the words of God speak for themselves as we kind of unpack this message of a substitute, Jesus Christ. Let's start in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples had entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. See, the first thing we see here in this text of, of John is that Judas meets Jesus with weapons and soldiers, right? And Jesus crosses this place. It's called the Brook Kidron, just outside of Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, you would recognize it because in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David leaves Jerusalem fleeing his own son, Absalom, who's betrayed him. And so this location tunes us into this idea of betrayal, that Judas is in the same spot that, J that David had left the city of Jerusalem in centuries before. In fact, John, our author of our text, clues us into this identity of Judas two times in our text. In verse 2, he says, now Judas, who betrayed him? Verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him? Judas was known as a betrayer, and he stood in this location marked by betrayal. 
But look at what happens in verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with what? With lanterns and torches and weapons. It's this angry mob coming after this, this harmless Messiah. Jesus, Judas comes at him with lanterns and torches and weapons. And he's gathered this kind of small army around himself. But here's the thing is Judas is overpowered and he doesn't even know it. Notice how Jesus responds in verses 4 through 9. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. See, Jesus does a few things in these section of verses. He displays his identity. He displays his authority. And he displays his humility. First, Jesus displays his identity. Notice Jesus' response in verse 5, I am he. It's not like someone shows up at your work saying, I'm looking for Jason Bradshaw. Yeah, that's me. No, Jesus is tapping into an Old Testament name of God. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses sees this burning bush that won't stop burning, he goes and looks at it, and sure enough, he meets with God there, and and God is going to send Moses back to Egypt to set the people free, and he asks him, he says, but who should I say sent me? I mean, what's your name? We don't even know your name. God responds, he says, I am that I am. Jesus is tapping into that meaning here. In fact, John's been using this phrasing throughout the book of John. He's, he's described Jesus in these words. Jesus says in John 6 that he's the bread of life. I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, I am the door for the sheep. In John chapter 10, again, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. In John 15, I am the vine, the true vine. Jesus is constantly presenting himself as equal to Father God back in Exodus chapter 3. And so when he says, I am, he speaks his name. Guess what? They all fall back. They bow down. They're crushed beneath the name of God. And so Jesus displays his authority, right? The effect of his name is so clear in verse 6 that all the soldiers just draw back and fall to the ground. And so Jesus, with full authority, simply says his name, and his enemies are ruined. In other words, Jesus didn't have to go with anybody. Jesus didn't have to go with this small band of ragtag soldiers and their lanterns and their swords. He didn't have to bow to them. He didn't have to submit to them. All he had to do was speak the word, and this little rebellion would be squelched. And this is important, because if you remember from John 10, Jesus is saying, hey, hey, I'm the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd lays down his life. Nobody takes the life from the shepherd, right? Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. Instead, he freely gives his life. It's here that we see Jesus' humility, right? In verses 7 and 8, they ask Jesus again, and, and Jesus responds, I'm he. And then he procures this promise that, that his disciples will go free if he goes with them. And he hands himself over. Jesus, in all his innocence, is handed over to be tried by sinners. It's an exemplifying of his humility. So that humility, take that, and compare it to what happens next in verses 10 and 11. Peter draws his sword, and he fights back. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, Malchus Van Gogh, right? Cut off his ear. That was a really dumb art joke. But uh, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, Peter fights back. He, he decides he's going to fight back. And so he grabs this sword that he's brought and he cuts off Malchus's ear. Remember, Judas comes with, with torches and spears and soldiers. Peter fights back with a kitchen knife. We recognize here that Peter has this motivation. There's something he wants, right? He doesn't just, he's not just a violent man. Jesus, Peter has recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's there. He's just trying to defend this kingdom. He's trying to just defend Jesus. He's trying to, to just... Uh, stand up for what he thinks is right. If we were to go back to chapter 13, Jesus had promised Peter, hey, listen, by the night's end, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter is just full of gusto, right? But notice Jesus's rebuke for Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? Peter, there's things here at work that you don't even know, you don't even understand. Something's happening. Something's at work that you just don't get. This isn't just pacifist rhetoric from Jesus. Jesus prefers the Father's violence toward him over and above bringing violence toward others. So the denouement happens in verses 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so they go to Annas' house. And Annas' Annas was this kind of, uh, he was the patriarch of these high priests, right? So historically, we know this to be the case that Annas was the high priest, and then his sons became the high priest, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became the high priest. So there's this whole family of men that have become the high priest over these years. And so they just go to the patriarch, and they're going to seek his approval of Jesus' death. 
And we've heard about his son-in-law, Caiaphas, before. In chapter 11, verse 50, he makes this prophecy, and he says, it's better for one man to die than for all the people to suffer, right? It's better for Jesus to die than for all of Israel to kind of be put in a bad position with Rome. And so, obviously, his words had more meaning than he even understood. And we just want to kind of take this verse, and we're going to keep it up on the shelf because we're going to return here in just a minute, but it has importance for us this morning. Just know that. So we see Judas betrays Jesus with worldly authority. He comes at Jesus with swords and soldiers, and he wants to uh, betray him and live in this rebellion toward him, right? I wonder if we might find ourselves in this. Maybe some of us are in a state of rebellion. We are actually kind of in a state where our heart is so hardened in our sin that we are rebellious against the God who made us. And we're living in this ongoing rejection and we're pursuing whatever desires we have in our heart and our mind. We are just living in obstinance to the God who created us. The second example is a little bit more slippery. Peter denies Jesus with this half-hearted allegiance. Verses 15 through 18 kind of give us the first entry into Peter's heart. Look at verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples, are you? Or you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was with them, standing and warming himself. So what happens is John and Peter work up the guts to follow Jesus to Annas' house, right? And so they kind of go and they follow Jesus and they get there. And John can go in because he's got like the, the connections to get inside this thing. And eventually he goes out and grabs Peter. But the servant girl who's with them recognizes Peter because, you know, when you cut somebody's ear off, it tends to make a scene, right? And so she says, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, it's not me. Number one. Now notice what happens here. This is so fascinating. Verses 18 tells us that they're creating this charcoal fire. Peter and John warming themselves as their Messiah stands trial. John's clear about the juxtaposition of what's happening here because verse 18 is in direct contrast to what happens in verses 19 through 24. Peter is in this comfortable position, having denied his connection with Jesus, warming himself by the fire. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus is questioned. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said. They know what I said. 
When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. See, when Jesus is questioned about his teaching, he highlights that he never spoke privately. In John's gospel, he consistently has spoken in public places, most often in the temple. It's notable that even in John 7, when his brothers are asking him to go up to this festival, he says, no, I'm not going to go, but then goes in secret and then ends up speaking publicly in the temple. It's interesting, too, that in the crowd, there are two men who are more than capable of speaking about Jesus's teaching, more than capable of speaking up and defending their Messiah, but they stay silent. But what happens is one of these guards gets frustrated with Jesus, and he slaps Jesus across the face. And he asks, you know, is this how you would address the high priest? He's accusing Jesus of insubordination. It's worth the question this morning, isn't it? Who's really insubordinate in that room? In fact, Jesus highlights his innocence in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm innocent. I don't know what you're talking about. I've done nothing wrong. If Jesus' words were in public, why aren't these particular instances being brought up to discuss? If Jesus has broken the law, where are the witnesses? But again, coming out of this, John brings us to the life of Peter. Simon Peter, verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. We see two more denials of Peter, making three total. It's not like Peter's standing in front of Caiaphas or Pilate. He's talking to servant girls. But fear is fear, isn't it? Peter denies Jesus these two additional times. No matter who the audience is that he's speaking to, he's there, he's afraid, he's speaking out of fear. So what we see, right? We see Judas in all of his rebellion is is, uh, betraying Jesus in this uh, fist against God, anger and rebellion, this heart that is rejecting the authority and rule of this Messiah. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's Peter who has promised this allegiance, but when push comes to shove, just can't bring his heart to to be in it and is rejecting or denying Jesus in another kind of rejection of Jesus, isn't he? See, it's with that in mind that I think John has subtly woven into this text this theme that I want to pick up for a second. So Jesus is our substitute. If you look at chapter 18, 
There's a few details hidden within the text. First, that, that Peter comes into, or Jesus comes into a garden. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered, right? You're saying, well, what's the big deal? It's a garden. Well, think about the gardens that you know about in Scripture, right? The very first garden that was in existence was this place where Adam and Eve were called to dwell with God. And, and what happened there? Adam and Eve rebel against God. They, they take the fruit that God had forbidden. They eat of it. They deny God's words. Satan tempts them with this idea that said, did God really say? And they reject God there. And Jesus, the new Adam, enters into a garden. But it's not only that, he quotes the words of Caiaphas in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should what? Die for the people. That we should find ourselves in a need of a substitute, that someone else would step in for us. And so John is highlighting these words of Caiaphas that someone was going to step in for sinners. But it's most notable there in verse 7 and 8. Jesus answered, verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is saying, hey, take me, put me to death so that these disciples can go free, right? And verse 9 even unpacks it even more. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken of these whom you've given me. I have lost not one. Jesus said this in John chapter 17 in a prayer to the Father. And he said, I'm not going to lose any of your disciples. I'm not going to lose any of those you've given to me. And I'm going to procure them through my own substitutionary death. I'm going to give myself for them. In fact, that word for is so important in the New Testament, right? It's the word that highlights this issue of atonement and substitution. Christ died for our sins. See, what this text presents is it presents to us two sinners in need of a substitute. John shows us two modes of a rebellious heart. There's a simple, cold-hearted rejection of Judas. It's blatantly murderous and greedy. It makes no pains to remain hidden. It's the sin of youth, isn't it? Youth are particularly prone to this rejection, aren't they? It's rebellion unto the desires of the flesh. It's blatant drunkenness, unapologetic sexual expression, just high-handed, arrogant sin against God. Maybe you're not here this morning, you're not practicing any of those things, but you don't give a rip about what God thinks or what God says. You are in this category of hard-hearted sinners against God. But there's the second category. Those of us like Peter, right? They have hard-hearted zeal. And it looks like righteous living, but underneath its polished exterior is the stink of rebellion. It makes claims to be good without God's help, and in so doing, stands in obstinance to the very God it claims to submit to. It promises but fails to deliver. It looks holy on the outside, but it's inwardly sinful, right? Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, no, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I'm going to follow you. 
Peter had this way of the kingdom that was knives and swords and rebellion and fights. And Jesus has to stop his hand and say, should I not take this cup from the Father? See, what this text is pointing us to is there's two sinners at opposite ends of the spectrum. And then there's the way of Christ. The substitute who takes his, he takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. It's the words of Isaiah 53, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, by facing our death, Jesus gave us life. When I needed a substitute, God provided the righteousness of Christ. So let me ask you this question this morning. Are you a rebel? Do you find yourself in a state of rebellion? Have you find yourself kicking against the purpose of God? Perhaps like Judas, you've betrayed him to his face. You've held a high fist toward God and dared him to stop you. Or, or perhaps like Peter, you've feigned obedience while trying to do the religious thing in your own way. Either way. The grace and mercy of God is sufficient to you in Christ. There's no sin that it cannot cover over. There's no wrongdoing that God's mercy is too short for. See, this morning, God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient to grant you repentance in your rebellion. I don't know where you are. You might be here this morning. You might be saying, you know what? I, I'm growing in Christ. I, I'm, I'm seeking to live for the Lord. Uh, that's great. But in every audience like this, we, we might find a few people who have said, I'm just done with this. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And, and they kind of embrace this pattern of saying, I, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I'm, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. No, if you're in that spot, Jesus beckons you to come. Isn't that his call in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what does he give? He gives rest. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus holds himself out, not as the one who stands in judgment over your sin, but as the one who extends grace to cover over your sin if you acknowledge it. So the call this morning to those who are rebellious in heart and, and want to stand up in arrogance or are too tired to keep going on, the call is to come to Christ and find mercy. Perhaps more of us are in the second category. We are those who, because of past sins and wrongdoings, are so burdened with shame and guilt that we cannot feel like we can move on. Maybe you have that sin or that thing in your history, in your background, that is so defining for you that you cannot move forward. And you find so much shame and guilt in that moment. I just say this to you, His mercy, His grace is sufficient. 
What is there in the blood of Christ that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to cover over that wrongdoing? I wonder if we might be those who cling to our substitute, cling to Christ, who come and we recognize our history as either Judas's or Peter's. We live in either states of open rebellion or states of a half-hearted, self-defined obedience. Truth is this morning that there's a substitute. I don't have to be perfect. Jesus has been perfect for me. And when I come to him and say, Lord, I need grace and mercy from you. I, I recognize that my sinful heart is arrogant and rebellious to you. He meets me with grace and mercy, doesn't he? I wonder if we might be those who cling to that cross of Christ. Pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would honor your name in us. Help us to be those whose only hope is Jesus and his death and resurrection. Help us to confidently bring our sins to the throne, knowing that Jesus' blood is sufficient to pay for our sins. And help us to know that we are accepted in Christ because of his righteous life. Lord, you tell us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, we know that by Jesus' blood, we are not condemned. So Lord, bring that to bear on our hearts and on our minds. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.